Hello and welcome to I Wish I Wrote That Song, a podcast where we talk to songwriters and artists about themselves, songwriting and a song they wish they wrote. They'll then play a cover of the song for us at the end of the episode. I'm Keith Wyatt, one of the founders of Indie Kitchen, an acoustic sessions website and a small record label based in Cornwall in the UK. And I'm David Glover, a writer, record producer, a musician and owner of Tesla Studios, a recording studio in Sheffield. For this episode, we spoke to Charles Watson, member of Sheffield band Slow Club. Charles's debut solo album, Now That I'm a River, was released in 2018 on one of our favourite labels, Moshi Moshi. It was released to critical acclaim and was named one of the albums of the year by Lauren Laverne on BBC Radio 6. Slow Club released four albums spanning a period of almost 10 years, their first being Yeso yeah, in 2009. I've been fortunate to have worked with them both as a band and individually since then. We talked to Charles about writing music for film, demoing his next album, and of course, the song he wish he wrote, a song by Bob Dylan. Head over to our website at IWishIWroteThatSong.co.uk for more episodes and Spotify playlists of the songs featured or mentioned in the episode. Welcome to I Wish I Wrote That Song with Charles Watson. Hi Charles, thanks for joining us. Hey Charles. Hello, thanks for having me. What have you been up to? For the last 24 hours, I've been mostly driving to the vets and back to get my cat's eye sorted out. She had a bit of a dodgy eye, so we've had a bit of a, a bit of a crazy 24 hours with some slightly eye-watering vets bills, but we're hoping the sweet insurance is going to cover it. It's actually kind of amazing what they've done, but also when they were telling me, it's just like, I was just like zoning out and just like, you know, that, that meme with all the numbers, just, <laughs> it's just like me. <laughs> that was me. So what are you up to on the music front then, Charles? I've been, I've been trying to write a record. A friend of mine who's got a studio round the corner from ours is um, working from home at the moment. So he's very kindly let me use his studio when he's not there. So I'm kind of been jumping in there. So I've been, I feel I've been getting, getting some stuff down. I've been working on a film score for a friend of mine in LA. So I'm kind of, I started that at the beginning of the year. So I've got to tidy up a load. It's basically just like, it's all the really boring jobs that I'm kind of putting off. So I've got to just do like, like about a week of editing and overdubs on that. And then, and then I'm kind of nearly there with that. So I'm hoping that that's going to see the light of day quite soon because it's really, really funny. It's like um, it's like a dark comedy about a a girl who goes into a witness protection program, but she keeps leaving the witness protection program and going back to her hometown because she she misses her grandma, and she kind of meets this this fella on the way, and they have a bit of a road trip. So yeah, I've been I've been working on that. It's kind of he didn't give me any any like music cues at all for the whole the whole thing which was really good because people are normally really specific and it's kind of hard to to get it right but he he was he, he just said oh i just uh, i just put the soundtrack to the godfather on while i was cutting the film i was like oh oh brilliant yeah yeah i'll just do that in my bedroom uh, on on headphones while the baby's asleep shall i <laughs> Do you find it fun writing for that kind of thing rather than songs? Is it a different kind of Yeah, I, I really like it, actually. It's more... Um, 
freeing maybe yeah it's it's just really different it's kind of um personally i feel like writing songs feels more like work because you do genuinely like hit walls and just be like ah, i just gotta kind of got burn through the 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 feeling of total emptiness and then get through to <laughs> but like with with doing stuff for picture it's a bit more like you've kind of got a job you can see the job in front of you and you kind of know where it starts, you know where it ends, and you kind of, it's more like a kind of puzzle in a way, I think. Um, mm. So I kind of like that, like, start, finish, good, bad, yes, no kind of thing with it, because it's, cause it's ultimately yeah. you're contributing to someone else's project rather than you just totally being responsible for your own. Is it nice to be it being separated from you personally? Like I said, when you're doing your stuff, it's writing songs, whereas that, there's nothing... As personal for me, if there's a mood set already or there's a theme set already, right into that, it's definitely a different uh, experience from from a writing perspective. Yeah, like I mean, obviously you don't have to focus on words really, and unless it's a specific kind of thing. But to be honest, I think I probably wouldn't go in for writing words for something like that just because it's it is a different kettle of fish, isn't it? When you do that, but I feel like just writing music and kind of getting my head around different things that I probably wouldn't do like I've been I've been kind of working on some kind of string arrangements this week and like I'm by no stretch of the imagination a string arranger but kind of just messing around with different ways of doing it on you know like different inversions and ways of voice and stuff which I would just never I would never think to just sit down and do if I was kind of trying to crack on with some songs and stuff. So it's been nice actually because I'm kind of rare. I feel like I'm raring to go on like the making a record front now. So where are you as far as album two? Where's that process? Yeah. One and a half songs, Keith. <laughs> Completely <laughs> and utterly unfinished. <laughs> um, I've, I've, are they good one and a half songs? Yeah, though? yeah, I think so. Uh, the best Excellent. one and a half songs I've written since... In the yeah. <laughs> since Corona time, yeah. uh, I've kind of got I've got a lot of demos of like snippets of ideas. Um, I think that this is my major major downfall with actually getting getting work finished. Is like I'm really into like getting like into a little audio world and creating a, a place that I would love to listen to, and then that thing being a song at the same time is often they they don't belong together <laughs> so like i've been trying to not do that as much because i just know that what happens is i just end up with like a cool sounding thing that isn't a finished song and it just stays on my hard drive until the hard drive dies and i have to take it to someone to get it fixed yeah i'm trying to just like focus on like guitar and vocals or piano and vocals and just like the words because i think when the words are coming like the rest of it's just i find a lot easier and it falls into place a little bit more for me once the words are there. So just kind of cracking on with that, really. Are the words usually second for you? Is that, is that usually the pattern? Uh, I, f I think it's, nor it's normally like I, I kind of go through phases of like writing a lot of words and like making notes of things that I like and just kind of paying attention to words a lot more just in everyday life. I think when I've kind of finished a record and I definitely notice like a, I've got like the iCloud notes thing, like that goes back to like 2012 or something. And I can kind of notice like there's like big gaps in there. Like after I've finished a record or after, after I've done something, like I kind of just don't think about it at all f for a, a kind of a period of time. Do you often piece lyrics together then? Like have a, 
an idea and you'll jot it and you'll keep it and then maybe you'll piece things together to create a song yeah that's that seems to be the way that i've kind of worked mostly is some, sometimes it doesn't work like that but generally i've got this you know like a clipboard but it's like double size yeah and i just for a lot of the last record i just had like this huge big clipboard with me most of the time and just i just kind of wrote words down that i really that made me kind of think about something and then i kind of piece stuff together with that that hopefully makes some sort of sense that i wouldn't just sit down and write a, a whole song in one go it's 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 more of kind of like a collage i think so i kind of i could kind of understand why maybe it would make no sense to anyone <laughs> <laughs> so if that's you there you go <laughs> and here's charles with the title track from his debut album now that i'm a river do the delicate dance that only you only you know Then take my hand and feel the wreckage will go Through the wreckage will go I can't stop now that I've started And I won't wait for someone else's child I heard that things got out of control and you were killed by your own But now that I'm a Chance of being me. 
Thanks, Charles. So where did your love of Carlos Santana come from? Well, my dad was big into Santana the early years. He played some really good music, actually. He was like, my dad, my dad doesn't like play anything, but like he, he played a lot of like Leonard Cohen and like Van Morrison and kind of a lot of like 60s and 70s pop like Bill Withers and stuff in the car. So there's certain songs when I hear them kind of get very nostalgic about it. Like when I hear Sweet Thing, it kind of makes me feel really like there's a very strange emotion that I can't quite put my finger on, but it's kind of super summary. Yeah, I think that I think the whole Leonard Cohen influence definitely feels like it had a big effect on me in terms of writing. He's always someone that I kind of just dip back into. I mean, even right to the end, like he was just knocking it out of the park, wasn't he? Like he's definitely one of the greats, isn't he? Ah, oh, he's so good, so good. Come over to the window, my little darling. Did you see that documentary, the Marianne documentary that was on recently? No. No, I didn't see it, unfortunately. It was, it was really interesting. I mean, he doesn't come off super well. Like, he's, he seems like a bit of a bit of a shit in it. <laughs> but it's just interesting because it's, it's weird. Like, you know Nick Broomfield, the, the filmmaker? Know of, yep. When Leonard Cohen was in, I think it was Hydra, on the Greek island, and he was, like, writing songs from a room. Like, he was kind of having an affair with Marianne or started to see Marianne and then Mick Broomfield who was probably like 17 or 18 at the time like he just shows up in this documentary and he was like also dating Marianne I was like hang on what what (laughs) I thought thought someone had like changed the channel mid mid documentary it was really confusing (laughs) but um he was quite a lot older than a lot of the his like kind of peers the folk singer kind of people at that time he was I think he was like in his like mid 40s when he kind of started writing songs which is quite interesting isn't it you don't hear that very often it's 10 years or over 10 years now since yes so how do you look back on that album now i i haven't listened to it for a little while or quite a long while actually but when I do hear a little snippets, it just it makes me feel 
very nostalgic. I feel like we were super lucky in the sense that we kind of started we started making music before the whole social media thing kind of took off and it was like a last little moment before everyone just knows everything all the time and it's like it's quite nice because the memories of those of those sessions are kind of if they're not like on someone's Facebook you know like feed from a million years ago then they're just kind of in our minds and it's like it's quite nice to have moments like that they're like obviously it was quite a pivotal moment for us and it's not something that's like just like massively documented and I kind of I kind of like it that way really because you just remember things the way you want to remember them. <laughs> 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 To be honest, it was like an incredibly pleasant record to make. Like I remember us being really excited and feeling like really kind of like lucky that we were getting to to make it and to make it in that studio as well and work with Mike and Glover and it was just a, a, a really a really great moment for us, I think. Like Mike kind of you know, like for for a band making a first record I felt like we were kind of uh, allowed to like experiment a lot with what was going on in the room and in terms of it just being the two of us I felt like we spent a lot of time doing like big vocal overdubs and I think that was always like a really fun thing in slow club yeah, was the shouty the big shouty vocal yeah and just like singing like big kind of like roomy kind of like harmonies and stuff and that's always even right to making the last record like was is always kind of like the, the the really fun bit because it's like all the hard work's done the writing's done all the kind of main performance throughout the way and it's like it was always like a, a nice little treat for us to kind of get to that point in a session where you know you can let your hair down a bit and it's just a bit more relaxed making yeah so was us kind of figuring out what that what the whole thing was and just to do it in that room at access was just like really sweet The title of the podcast is I Wish I Wrote That Song. So which song do you wish you wrote? The song I wish I'd wrote is uh, Girl from the North Country by Bob Dylan. If you're traveling to the North Country Fair Where the winds hit heavy On the borderline 
Remember me to one who lives there. For she once was a true love of mine. The version that I really love is the Nashville Skyline version. Because he did it on, was it Blonde on Blonde? Or freewheeling. Freewheeling, was it? So I was listening to that version this, this week, actually, and I really love that period of Bob Dylan as well, like when he's just, he's just kind of in the studio with a guitar and he's just, it's just him. That version to me just sounds so not magical at all. It just it sounds like he's rushing it. It doesn't feel like it's, uh, it's sitting properly. And I mean, obviously, it's, it's still amazing, but like when you hear him play it like a few years down the line in a different studio environment with, you know, like different people around him, it just feels like, and it feels super casual as well. Like there's just so many mistakes in it. Like him and Johnny Cash, just they're just all over the place in the best possible way. I was watching a little documentary on YouTube. I think it's, if you just search for like uh, Nashville Skyline Session, it's like a Bob Johnston Nashville documentary. I'll, 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 I'll forward you the link. Bob Johnson, who produced the record, is kind of describing the fact that he'd been in New York recording Bob Dylan. I think it was in like the Columbia Studios or somewhere, and it was like quite formal. The label bosses were all there, and he—he's from—I think he's from Nashville, and he was like basically trying to get Bob Dylan to go down to Nashville to record with all these like amazing country players. The the label had kind of said to him, "If you if you mention Nashville again, you're fired." to Bob Johnston and so he kind of I think he kind of worked Bob Dylan down to the point where he managed to get him to go down to Nashville for a weekend and like just played with a bunch of the players there and I think he made like four records at the same studio with lots of different players but this documentary is really interesting because it kind of feels as though it's like a turning point from traditional like records been made in you know like in the 50s in like early 60s it's like people that are making records in studios it's like kind of big band leaders and singers and it's quite formal and like it's almost like a craft and big label bosses and it's this this kind of obviously very well-oiled machine but when you hear them talking about Bob Dylan making records in Nashville it's like it went quite casual and like all the players are used to being like on the clock and like they they go in at like midday or something and then they stay till six and then they leave and they have like kind of sheets and they punch in and punch out and it's very much you know like a, a shift or something but when you hear them talking about the Nashville skyline sessions it's like you know everyone would get to the studio for like six and Bob Dylan would be just writing writing lyrics in the hallway and everyone would be like just told to hang around until midnight and then they'd they'd just record till 4am and like it seems like all the players never really had never really experienced that kind of working environment, and so everyone seems to really love recording with him. And it's it's just really cool because all these players are like these like total country virtuoso players, like the pedal steel players, just like absolutely unbelievable. And they just all really love love it when when he comes to, to Nashville to record. So it feels definitely feels like there's 
on that record, especially on Nashville Skyline, as opposed to like I think it's John Wesley Harding, Blonde on Blonde, Nashville Skyline, and 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 port- self portrait. They were all done in Nashville. Uh, Nashville Skyline definitely feels like it's not finished, and it's, there's something really nice about the fact that it's just super informal. You kind of don't hear that in pop music before that point, and you kind of don't hear it after because the seventies becomes quite slick, and then the eighties. like 15 songs in two days i think in this documentary he lists like how long each record t- took to make and I, he was like oh uh you know blonde on blonde was like two weeks um and nashville skyline was a day and a half can you believe that can you believe that <laughs> it's so good <laughs> <laughs> and I, lo- I, I love it it's just like they cut to like the guy on pedal still and he just plays the bits from Lay Lady Lay and like oh Lay Lady Lay is just a killer isn't it see I hated that song for such a long time really yeah like I really couldn't get my head around it and it's like I think because I'd got really into like like early Dylan his voice is so different yeah he goes for the Kermit kind of voice isn't it yeah his voice is so strange on that when I bought that album yeah it, it it just took me a while to get used to it. it was just I was at first I was looking at thing. Is this really Bob Dylan? Is this like one of those awful Top of the Pops records where someone's done some? Yeah, it was such a shock. Yeah. Whatever colours you have in your mind, I show them to you, and you see them shine. I actually had a bit of a problem with Nashville Skyline as an album because when me and LJ got together. We had this little this little record player um, that had like a little speaker in it, and we just we just she just always put Nashville Skyline on, and I just remember thinking, God, this is shit, this is rubbish. Why are we listening to this? This record's awful. Like his voice sounds so stupid. He's obviously like putting this voice on, and then like gradually like, and I never I never turned it off. Like I always just used to just get really angry and not say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then like slowly like it's just become this record that's just like so dear to me and i just know it so well like every little tiny little moment in it it's just like i can know it's i know it's coming i know all these little parts are coming and i think that's why i like it so much is because i just I, I know it so well as well from me having such a strong dislike of it to to being totally won over is like I don't know many records that have given that chance to win me over after totally disregarding mm. it. You can redo stuff and it's it's always always going to be a d- bit different, but I always get attached to the first thing. Mm. I quite like that about Bob Dylan. It's just like, it's almost like there's no attachment to any of it. It's mm. just like, it just keeps going and sometimes it's better, sometimes it's not, but it's always different. There's a man going round taking names and he decides who to free and who to blame everybody won't be treated all the same there'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around 
Johnny Cash is interviewed on on that documentary, and he's talking about the fact that they'd been writing to each other like for for a while, because um, Bob Dylan was a huge Johnny Cash fan, and then he, I might have got this wrong, but it seems like he says that the first time they met was the day they recorded this song, and then Bob Dylan stayed at his house while he was making the record as well, which is just like. I mean, imagine just hanging out one night. Yeah, it's totally mad. But there's a really sweet moment of them like w- like listening to the playback. Johnny Cash is kind of you can see him like wincing at all the mistakes mm. he's making. The face he's making is like there's no way that this is the final version. And Bob Dylan's just like doesn't even crack a smile. He's just like totally like zoned in. And there's something just quite bold about making a decision to be like yeah that's that's just it yeah because it must have been it must have been a feeling that you're going to send that to a label and they're going to go well you got all the words wrong and you laugh at the end so you know like that's not it I kind of want to listen to it right now <laughs> <laughs> in the north country fair where the wind hit heavy on the floor I very nearly picked the last song off John Wesley Harding for this as well because I think it actually goes back to back. I've got a feeling that it might have been done in the same session, but it's I'll Be Your Baby Tonight. It's another tune. It feels like it could belong on this record as well, doesn't it? It's, yeah. But that's one of those things where if you see the chords of that tune written down, it just makes no sense. Mm. Like there's just so many weird, like he just jumps in like the like the strangest ways, like harmonically, like... It's the same, like, David Bowie does it quite a lot. Like, if you ever try and learn Oh You Pretty Things, it's such a strange arrangement. Individually, like, each part of the song is just kind of makes total sense. Like, when you, you know, you sit down at a keyboard or a piano or whatever and just do it. But but when you put them together, it's like, how the hell did he manage to cobble this together? Because <laughs> it's like, jumping from this place to this place, in my head, I mean, obviously, it makes no sense, but, like, David Bowie's just like, yeah, it makes sense in my head. <laughs> oh, you pretty things. Don't you know your job and your job is and job is insane? Oh, you pretty things. Don't you know your job and your job is and job is insane? Let me make it plain. I really love Freewheeling. I guess it's still one of my favourite Dylan albums. But he wrote that song, I think, in... I think it was the December 62, when he was 21, I think, which is kind of remarkable. But then they recorded it in April and the album was released in May. So it just sounds like it was... You know, he, he obviously hadn't lived with the song for that long. I guess at that point it was about releasing things and, I mean, still not a bad album with the first three songs being blown in the wind. Um, Girl from the North Country and Masters of War. And then Chuck in Hard Rain as well later on in the album. It's kind of quite good, really, isn't it, for a second album when you're 21, 22 or whatever it was. I guess by the time National Skyline, he'd live with it for a bit longer and it was maybe came a bit more naturally, maybe. Let's be fair, like the version on that record is still amazing. I think it's just, I'm so attached to the other one that when you listen back to back, it feels really jarring. But yeah, I mean, that record is super special as well, isn't it? Because you can kind of hear how young he is as well. 
Like his, it's almost like his voice sounds older on the earlier records. So weirdly, it's like he's. It almost feels like he's kind of putting on this kind of gravel that mm. it kind of seems to disappear a bit as he gets older. Um, I don't know if that's like something that he was actually doing, but um, yeah, it's he does sound like a kind of an older man there, oddly. It was the worry of the time, maybe. Come, your masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Yeah, probably. It was probably a super scary time, was it? Was that yeah. Was that around Cuba. the kind of uh, Cuban Missile Crisis? It was, yeah. 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 Well, what? Yeah. Was it 63 when Kennedy died? So it would have been like right, right while he was doing it, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, because the story, I don't know how true it is, but the story behind Hard Rain was always that he didn't think he was going to get to write another song, so he put all the first lines from all the songs he had in his head into one song. Oh, really? No, I... I didn't. Yeah, that, that was, that's the kind of you know, urban myth. I don't know if it's true, but that's about Hard Rain's going to fall. Is Yeah, it was in the middle of all the Cuban Missile Crisis. Really political time, wasn't it? Like civil rights, black rights, and NAM and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, so much unrest. Mm throughout the states yeah and you hide from my eyes and you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly do you want to know what else was happening that year in in the world um Ooh, i guess yes. quite topically to well i mean certainly 63 when that when the song first came out anyway rolling stone signed to decca that year um maybe topically for today on ve day winston churchill retired from politics that day and mike myers was born our biggest single of the year in 63 was Surfing USA by the Beach Boys. Across the USA Then everybody be surfing Like California Obviously we've talked about a couple of Dylan versions of the same song. What about other versions? We were talking about cover versions and people doing classic songs. It seems to be a song that so many people have recorded. I don't know too many versions actually. Who, who are the people that have done it? Well, um... Of, of the kind of similar era, Roy Harper, Neil Young, Rod Stewart, Joe Cocker. I think their versions are reasonably one, and I think. Joe, um, Joe Cocker yeah. gets swear water cart, doesn't he, that one? <laughs> 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 He's always covering people. And then, yeah, recently, kind of surprising ones, actually. There's a really quite a good Eels version. Oh, oh cool. I thought it was good. Counting Crows. I love them, but I don't love the version of Do that, you? I'm afraid, sorry. And actually kind of interesting, Roseanne Cash version. Apparently her dad gave her a list of 100 most important songs and she made an album called The List from it. If you're travelling in the North Country Fair With the winds here heavy on the borderline I mean, you've kind of said why that version of it in a way, but why that song? I, get, I mean, it's super simple. It's kind of like the same thing all the way. And I know that I'm really attached to that performance of it, but it's just something about the the song kind of sings more in the Nashville version. But I don't know, it's like I don't feel like I have to think too much when I listen to it. I don't it's not like um obviously like a lot of Dylan's songs are like there's lots of politics going on, there's lots of references and it, this it's a nice moment where it's just it's just like a really simple kind of love song or country song i mean it's 
it doesn't feel like he's kind of imposing anything on you. He's just kind of telling you something. Yeah. I suppose like a lot of the really, a lot of really huge songs that do the same thing, don't they? Where you, there's not many specifics. It's just a little bit vague maybe. So the listener can kind of impart their own experiences on that and it kind of make a bit more sense. I mean, did you, did you hear that Malcolm Gladwell thing about uh, wild horses? He was talking about how wild horses, it's just full of like platitudes. It's totally generic and like how country songs, you know, that mention like specific cities and like names and they pack like more of an emotional punch. And so he kind of weighs up, I think it's a Dolly Parton tune, but like he's talking about how there's like this really specific thing that, that country singers do that it's like really like potent and intense. And then people like the Stones do these things that are like really vague and like obviously appeal to like much more people, but like aren't as effective in kind of delivering the the emotion that he's after. But I can kind of see it. But then also like I listened to Wild Horses after I was like, it's a good tune though, isn't it? Do you go into an album with a a vision for an album, or is it something that, that kind of forms while you're bringing those songs together? Um, I feel like when we were doing Now That I'm a River at Tesla, it felt like there was a little bit of magic in the air where, like, basically I'd booked the studio and kind of said to... I sent an email to, like, a bunch of people uh, saying, oh, I've got these songs... I've got the studio for this this weekend and this weekend. Like, who who wants in? It's it's going to be a bit of a DIY thing, but if anyone wants to come, let's you know let's make it happen. And then everyone basically like said yes. So I started crapping myself because I was like, oh no, I've not got enough parts. I need to start writing more parts. But like, there was just a really nice atmosphere in the studio because there was a bunch of demos, but the vibe was more like we wrote the chords on the board. And it kind of just came together really naturally. Is, is that is that how you remember it, G? That feels like how, how it was. Oh, it definitely was. Like we'd just sit up in the room, we'd just play in the room, kind of get the chords across, written down. Everyone would have the questions, and then we'd do like three takes once everyone knew the structure, and that'd be it. Yeah. And then we'd just move on. It was just like such a. But that sounds like rushed, but it wasn't. It just it just flowed really nicely. Yeah, it's it the album has that feeling of an album that came together easily and that it's uh, it wasn't over-rehearsed before you recorded it. I'm not saying it sounds under-rehearsed, but it just sounds fresh and it sounds like it, it was put together in the way you've described it. So so it just shows, I mean, going back to the National Skyline album, doesn't it, to, re- to have recorded that album in a day and a half, it's just phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, imagine being able to just nail songs like that mm. in one go. So you're going to play a version of Girl from the North Country for us. Girl from the North Country 
Thanks, Charles. That's great. Brilliant. I'm Charles Watson, and you have just listened to my episode of I Wish I Wrote That Song, featuring Girl from the North Country by Bob Dylan. The hosts were Keith Wyatt, and David Glover. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a sparkling review with your podcast provider and share it with your friends and shout about it generally. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for future episodes. Toodle pip. I'll burn your house down, then I'll call tell you what. Have you heard that? Um... It's like an audio clip from a customer customer service call to Tesco. This guy got home and uh, he looked, he opened his pizza and there was no topping on it. 
And so he, 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 called, he called Tesco to complain because he was really hungry and he, didn't, he was like, he wanted them to deliver him a pizza because he really wanted a pizza and he want, didn't want to walk all the way back. And then he realised that he'd been holding it upside down. <laughs> it's, it's really worth checking out. Like the kid on the other end of the phone call just like totally loses it and he just can't stop laughing. It's really good. <laughs>